The Anarchist's Workbench by Christopher Schwarz Published by Lost Art Press This recording is by Ray Defterius and is not affiliated or endorsed by Lost Art Press in any manner. Any errors or omissions are purely the fault of the narrator, as is any general bungling of pronunciation of names. Chapter 6 Joinery, Like a Vow I'm eating a donut in Michigan while standing before the biggest pile of convenience store pastries I have ever seen. I chew on one and stare at an older couple. They stare back as the wife videotapes my every move. I chew, they film. I walk away, they follow. This weirdness took place during two days at John Sindelar's workshop in southwest Michigan. Sindelar had a huge collection of antique and contemporary hand tools. He estimated it at tens of thousands of tools at its peak, and decided to open the collection to the public one weekend. I was there, as were my two new clingy friends. Somewhere out there there's a videotape of this whole thing, but here's what happened, and how it relates to workbenches. In addition to owning acres of expensive old tools, Sindelar had also amassed the largest and most diverse collection of workbenches I've ever seen. The benches were strewn throughout the warehouse that housed his collection, and they were covered in antique tools. I like old tools, but I adore old benches. With my amateur film crew in tow, I walked from workbench to workbench to examine the joinery, vices and accessories. Most of the benches were from the 19th and early 20th centuries, based on the vices and fasteners used on the benches. What I learned that day transformed how I view workbench joinery. And, but wait, the husband of the film crew, probably the key grip, has wandered away from his post to the bathroom, leaving me alone with the wife and the camera. I stare at her, and she lowers the camera. I hate your guts, she said in a low voice. He, motioning towards her husband, buys every single expletive-deleted tool you've ever mentioned in the expletive-deleted magazine and on the expletive-deleted internet. Thousands of dollars, and the speech goes on quite a bit. I don't know what to say. What can you say? I decided to say something, but I can see the husband is walking back now. The woman stops talking mid-sentence and raises the video camera back to her eye. Anyway, what I learned about workbench joinery that day is that knockdown joinery can easily come loose. As I test drove Sindelar's benches, I found a lot of them swayed. Their tusk tenons were loose. So I'd find a mallet, there were some solid gold ones lying about, and whack the tusk tenons back into place, fixing the problem. I also found that the benches that relied on mechanical fasteners especially lag screws or wood screws, had serious problems. The wood around these fasteners had been wallowed out, and the fastener was holding on, but not holding fast. I began to think about all the benches I had made during the previous years that incorporated lag bolts and wood screws. Were they doomed to fail? Someone's videotape collection somewhere captured my internal struggle. I know I used the faraway look in my eyes emotion, and I hope to win an award for my performance someday. A few years later in Georgia, 
I encountered a bench that finished the thought I began on Donut Day. Beau Childs, the guy who hosts the French Oak Rebeau project, had purchased a commercial French workbench made by La Forge Royale and imported it to Georgia. The bench was likely from the early 20th century based on the company's history and the bench's construction details. But what was important was how solid the bench remained, even though it had been beaten like a rented mule. Some of the tenon shoulders had pulled away from their mortises, or the legs had shrunk. The bench top was a mess of saw cuts and chisel marks. This bench had seen heaps of abuse at the hands of its French torturers, but it was still solid and ready to work. That day is when I decided that the joint I preferred for a workbench is a pegged, preferably a drawboard, mortise and tenon joint. No lap joints, no tusks, no nuts, bolts and washers. While I am sure those forms of joinery can be engineered to work for the long term, why bother? There is already a joint that is perfect for the job, and it is the strongest and simplest of them all. The Lenny Small of joinery, if you will. Tell me about tenons, George. For me, the joinery for a workbench is governed by two principles. If it can come loose, it will come loose. Simple, blind and massive is best. The first principle is for people who wish to bolt their benches together. I used to be one of those people because I thought it would be an excellent way to knock down a workbench for travel. Bench bolts with captured nuts are indeed a great way to build a knockdown workbench. And if you travel every month to a new city to set up your bench for a woodworking show, then the setup is a no-brainer. If you live on the fifth floor of a walk-up apartment without an elevator, a fall-to-pieces bench is the only answer. And if you build workbenches for customers, a knockdown workbench is far easier to ship. For the rest of us, however, a knockdown workbench is more trouble and compromise than necessary. I think knockdown joinery should be the exception, not the rule. The case in point for me is my $175 workbench, which I first bolted together in 2000 and has not been unbolted since. It has lived in at least five buildings in three states. When we need to move it, it was easier to throw it in a truck than take it apart. Unbolting a bench is a pain in the arse. You need a ratchet set. You need to keep track of the parts. And by the time you get it apart, you could have thrown the whole bench into the back of a truck and been 45 minutes down the road. An aside, a tusk tenon bench is faster to knock down. When I tell people this fact, they contend that there's no disadvantage to having a knockdown bench. So why not add the bolts and nuts? I have two arguments. First, installing a captured nut and bolt joint takes time, effort and jigging, especially the first time you try and install this kind of hardware. I've made many benches with this setup, plus many more beds, so I can attest that it's not immense alike difficult. But the first time you do it, it is time consuming. It requires accurate drilling with some shop made jigs and a drill press, and if you screw it up and botch the location of the captured cross nut, you're in for an afternoon of patching and re-drilling. Been there. Making a simple mortise and tenon joint instead, without a captured nut, is faster, easier, and less prone to error. The second reason I eschew this joint, except when necessary, is a lesson I learned from teaching a class outside Atlanta, GA. After arriving at the school, they showed me the bench room, which was filled with heavy commercial workbenches. They were made with some sort of striped mahogany look-alike wood. That was odd. I'd never seen benches like this before, and haven't sensed. 
While unpacking my tools, I leaned against one of the benches. It recoiled. That was weird. So I grabbed its bench top and found the whole bench swayed like a broken down chair that hadn't quite given up the ghost. Alarmed, I gave a shake to the bench next to it. It also swayed. All of the benches in the room ranged from full-on festers from gun smoke to just a wee bit wobbly. I scared up a ratchet set to tighten things up, but some of the bench bases wouldn't tighten up. The bolts had run out of threads, and the wood in the bases had become so compressed that things just couldn't be tightened. So we had to get some washers to fill in the compressed areas. Eventually, these workbench bases would become useless, or they would have to be rebuilt. Now I'm sure that you could design a rock-hard bolt system that would outlast Western society. Those drunken workbenches at the school were on the downhill side of the bell curve of dumb design. But no matter what, you'll need to tighten your bolts every so often. We have a few benches that need a little help every winter when the plain totes and saw handles get loose because the humidity level has plummeted. The same goes for tusk tenon joinery, a common early technique to build a workbench. I've built several arts and craft bookcases using this joinery and I've used many workbenches that feature it on the base. It is clever. It looks awesome. And it's incredibly strong when the tusks are hammered home hard. But the simple act of working on the workbench can loosen up the tusks in my experience. And when winter comes, they are prone to loosen. And the way they release their grips is slow and insidious, like turning up the heat gradually on a live lobster in a stove pot. You don't notice it until things are pretty bad. And by that time, you have wasted a fair amount of energy working on a swaying workbench. I have close friends who completely disagree with me on tusk tenons and say there's never come loose. I believe them. It just hasn't been my experience. For me, the bottom line is, if it can get loose, it will get loose. One more note on bolts and other sorts of reversible joinery. Lag bolts, sometimes called lag screws, are not your fastening friend. I avoid them when attaching a bench top to the workbench base and when installing vices and other hardware. Bolts plus washers and nuts are superior to lags. When properly installed, lags can last a long time. But if you over tighten them, the lags can strip the wood surrounding the threads in a single rotation of the lag. Their grip is instantly ruined. So I avoid lag bolts as much as possible. And I avoid bolts and nuts unless I absolutely positively need a knockdown bench. What's left? Simple wood to wood joinery. Skip the fancy bits. The best joint for a workbench base is a well-fit mortise and tenon joint that is glued and drawboard. You can fuss over the dimensions and details of the joint, which we'll do here in a bit, but know that if you put a thick tenon into a thick-walled mortise in a substantial-sized leg, your bench will join millions of other workbenches that have survived hundreds of years of hard use. Add a large drawboard peg through the tenon and the joint is as good as can be. The above statement is like a marriage vow. It is forsaking of all other alluring joinery. Don't be a cheater and try to sneak off with the half-lap joint. It's easy to make, but will leave you broken in the end. Ditto for a screwed-together frame of 2x4s with a plywood skin. Yes, you'll have done the deed in just a weekend, but you'll pay for that weekend years on down the road. Dowels? You animal. Another consideration is how the base attaches to the bench top. I've already tried to ward you away from lag screws, 
which leaves us, again, with wood-on-wood -wood joinery. Some benches use gravity and unglued dowels between the base and heavy top. This is my least favourite way to join the top and base. When you move the bench, the top can will leap off. If you are building a knockdown workbench, this might be the best solution. But for a staple workbench, you can do better. A fair number of the old French benches use a fancy joint that has a sliding dovetail and a through tenon on the top of each leg. This joint pierces the bench top and looks nice. It holds the base to the bench top just fine. And though I've put this joint on many, many workbenches, customers love it, it's not my favourite way to join the base to the bench top. That's because for the first few years after you build the bench, the top continues to shrink and the end grain of the tenon and dovetail become proud. Every few months it verges into annoying and you have to plane the end grain down so you can get back to work. This annoyance is worth it, however, because of the functional advantage of the through joint. And that advantage is, well, actually there isn't one. After years of working on workbenches with this beautiful joint, I have found zero practical use for it. You might argue that it's a great end grain anvil for some operations, but that is a stretch. The fancy French joint is straightforward to cut, nothing to fear. So if you want to impress people and add some time to the construction process of your bench, feel free to add it. But don't fool yourself into thinking it's better. So what's the best way to join the base and the bench top? Just like when building the bench's base, I prefer a blind mortise and tenon that has been drawboard. If you are a wood movement nerd, I'm sure the above discussion has sparked a small stroke in your midbrain. Don't you have to allow the bench top to expand and contract? No, you don't. The entire bench frame might become a little distorted as the top shrinks, but I've never seen one tear itself apart or become non-functioning. The proof is all around you if you look at old benches. Component Dimensions Before we can talk about the dimensions of the joints, we have to talk about the dimensions of the parts of your workbench. Good workbench joinery begins with thick members. You are building an elephant, not a gazelle. Most wooden parts for furniture projects are 1 inch to 2 inches thick, with some cabriole shaped exceptions. When it comes to workbench construction, you should think bigger. 5 inches thick isn't ridiculous for the legs or the bench top. For the stretches between the legs, I think 2 inch stock, or thicker if you have it, is just fine. The core strength of a good old Ecolay workbench emanates from the joints between the bench top and the legs. The stretches are mostly along for the ride and to help make a shelf. So thinner stuff is acceptable for the stretches, though I shoot for two and a half inches thick where possible. Joinery dimensions. There are lots of rules for making mortise and tenon joints. But the best rule is the oldest rule documented in the English language by Joseph Moxon in the 17th century. It is worth giving him the flaw in this matter because there is nuance to consider. You must take care in mortise and tenoning. That as near as you can equalize the strength of the sides of the mortise to the strength of the tenon. I do not mean that the stuff should be of an equal substance, for that is not equaling the strength. But the equaling strength must be considered with respect to the quality, position and substance of the stuff. If you were to make a tenon upon a piece of fur, and a mortise to receive it in a piece of oak, and the fur and oak have both the same size, 
The tenon therefore made upon this piece of fur must be considerably bigger than a tenon need be made of oak, because fur is a much weaker wood than oak, and therefore ought to have a greater substance to equal the strength of the oak. And for position, the shorter the stuff that the tenon is made on, the less violence the tenon is subject to. Besides, it is easier to split wood with the grain than to break wood across the grain, and therefore the same wood when made as a tenon is stronger than the same wood of the same size when made as a mortise. For the injury a mortise is subject to is splitting with the grain of the wood, which without good care it will often do in working. But the force that must injure a tenon must offend it across the grain of the wood, in which position it will best endure violence. When two pieces of wood of the same quality and substance, as in the side example, are elected to make on the one a tenon and in the other a mortise, the following is what you should consider. If you make the mortise too wide, the sides of the mortise will be weaker than the sides that contain the mortise. And if one be weaker than the other, the weakest will give way to the strongest when an equal violence is offered to both. Therefore, you may see a necessity of equalizing the strength of one to the other as near you can. But because no rule is extant to do it by, nor can for many considerations I think a rule be made, Therefore this equalizing of strength must be referred to the judgment of the operator. Now to work. Translation. The best rule is experience. My addendum. If you don't have experience, just overbuild the whole thing and you'll be fine. Here's how I work through the process of designing a typical workbench's joints. Let's say the bench top is 5 inches thick and the legs are 5 inches thick. The stretches are two and a half inches thick. To join the legs to the bench top, everything is so thick that I can fall on an old rule that says the tenon should be one half of the thickness of the tenon member. The leg is five inches thick, so the tenon can be two and a half inches thick. That is massive. If I center the tenon on the leg, then both the mortise wall in the bench top and the shoulder of the tenon will be one and one quarter inch thick. That is substantial and would be acceptable on a timber frame building. Now let's look at the stretches down below for the base. They are two and a half inches thick. If I make the tenon half the thickness, one and a quarter, and center the tenon on the stretcher, then the mortise wall and tenon shoulder will be five eighths of an inch. That seems skimpy in comparison to the other joints in the bench. Is that too weak? Maybe, maybe not, but why take a chance? My recommendation is to use a bare-faced tenon. Make the tenon one and a quarter inches thick with the one and a quarter inch thick shoulder on only one side, the outside, and no shoulder on the inside. That's its bare face. This arrangement offers a massive one and a quarter inch shoulder at the outside of the leg to stretch a joint, and any minor gaps from the lack of shoulder at the back are concealed by a shelf, or by the fact that no one looks there anyway. This is how I keep Moxon in mind and balance the strength of both the tenon and the mortise walls. Everything written above is about the thickness of the tenons. What about the lengths? Make the tenons as long as is practical. For the stretches down below, the length of their tenons depends on how you arrange the stretches. If the four stretches are all the same distance from the floor, then the tenon can only be so long before they collide with the tenon from a neighbouring stretcher. If the stretches are different distances from the floor, the tenons can pass all the way through the legs. Either arrangement is fine.
For the tenons poking into the benchtop, I think you should leave enough wood above the tenons to allow the benchtop to be flattened many times without encountering the tenons. With a 5 inch thick benchtop, 3 inch long tenons on the legs will give me 2 inches of wood to flatten away during my lifetime and the lifetime of future generations. Draw boring. Draw boring a mortise and tenon joint adds a mechanical lock to what is already an excellent joint. You take a peg and drive it through holes in the both the mortise and the tenon. But here's the trick. The hole in the tenon is offset just a little towards the tenon's shoulders. I use a 1 inch offset in bench building. Driving in a stout peg tries to pull the holes into alignment. Some might say it draws the bores in line. But what it really does is bend the peg. Once again, this technique is a balancing act. A too skinny peg will split when driven in. A too thick peg will wreck the tenon, usually popping the end off the tenon and making the peg useless. For bench building, I like a 5 8 of an inch diameter oak peg with dead straight grain. I've experimented with bigger and smaller pegs and I seem to have the best results with 5 8 of an inch. My second favourite size is 3 quarters. Where should the peg be located through the tenon? Good question. I divide the tenon into thirds. If the tenon is 3 inches long, the hole should be about 1 inch away from the shoulder of the tenon. More details on the act of draw boring for workbenches are located in the chapters on constructing the workbench. Avoid the road to ruin. In my past, I built many workbenches that use metal fasteners as a way to simplify construction. I'm not alone, of course. Many magazines and videos tout how you can build their workbench design in a day or a weekend. The words fast, easy and cheap sell magazines and generate clicks. Shortcuts in workbench joinery are a dangerous gimmick, just like the restaurant by my old office that sold half-priced sushi. Nothing involving cheap joinery or dodgy fish has a happy ending. The archaeological record proves this point. The workbenches that have survived were built with simple mortise and tenon joints. I've seen 200-year-old benches that are as solid as the day they were made. And I've seen plywood benches from the 1970s that couldn't hold a house plant. To sum up my joinery advice, don't screw yourself. <laughs>